Welcome to episode 221. How do you get on with the old sleep? Do you wake up tired? Do you wish you were getting more? Or have you just surrendered to the zombie life of five hours a night or waking up 12 times every evening? If you're struggling with weight loss, hormone management or binge eating, then it might shock you to discover that sleep could be at the core of the problem. On this episode, we talk about why you should understand your chronobiology, how to begin the day, managing the light sources you expose yourself to, and both how to eat for sleep and how a lack of sleep directly impacts stress management and your food choices throughout the day. There's lots of goodness in here that you can implement right away. So, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Here we are hanging out on another podcast that's full of juicy goodness, and actually today here with me is a bit of a sister from another mister. Before we do it, though, you should know that in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. So when you're super busy and life just gets a bit crazy and wild, I'm guessing the first thing to be chopped off the to-do list is usually sleep. People often do this for so many reasons, and even on a weight loss journey or a health journey, they go to bed later due to meal prep or doing stretching or they wake up early to get to the gym and then they find out in a few weeks or a few months that not much has ended up changing with their actual body weight or their health except feeling even more knackered and eventually maybe even adrenal fatigue but no one ever seems to actually blame the lack of sleep for the lack of results now there's so much that needs to be dissected and understood about the amazingly nourishing health variable of sleep it might not surprise you to know that the importance of sleep and how to do it better are actually two separate things, which is why I want to introduce you to Molly Eastman, or the artist formerly known as Molly McLaughlin, <laughs> whom is the creator of Sleep is a Skill and the host of the Sleep is a Skill podcast. At Molly's company, besides sleeping on the job, they specialize in the optimization of people's sleep through a unique blend of technology, accountability, and behavior change. And this was birthed into existence after navigating insomnia while traveling internationally. She created what she couldn't find, a place to learn the skill set of deeply fulfilling night of sleep on repeat. And having known the difference between a life with sleep and without sleep, which obviously sounds bloody awful, she's now dedicated her life to sharing the forgotten skill set of sleep. So without further ado, here we go. Molly, 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 what's going on? Yay, I'm so excited for this. I know we're kind of juggling multiple time zones and we had lots of different um, attempts at making this happen. And this is finally the moment. So really, this is going to be awesome. Totally agree. And just to give context to the listeners. So Molly and I hang out regularly on Zoom calls and we have the kind of relationship where Molly's probably seen me pick my nose multiple times in long periods of time on Zoom calls. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he is being humble. I always see great sides of Maddie, especially quite the perky person for first thing in the morning, right? Half the time when I see you, I think it's usually you're like bright and just, you know, rolling out of bed and yet you're fantastic to be around Zoom or otherwise. <laughs> oh, likewise. Well, um, what a good place to start though, rolling, rolling out of bed. So yes, exactly. Yeah. So 
with your health journey, like what happened for you to be a sleep expert? Like, and the idea of a skill set of sleep, most people just think I just go to sleep automatically. Like, can you explain all of that for us? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, cause it was sort of a, um, uh, it was a path that I certainly wouldn't have predicted by any stretch of the imagination. And what this looked like was, um, kind of a three part story, if you will. Uh, first part was growing up. Um, my relationship to my sleep was one of kind of a lot of narratives. Uh, I'm a night owl. I'm a short sleeper. It's in my genes. You sleep when you're dead, all of these sort of things. Um, and just as if it was all fixed and that was how it was for me and, you know, just bear, uh, just get through it essentially was kind of how I acted around it. Um, and then it, it, I wasn't connecting the dots when I started having a lot of other, um, deleterious effects with my health that I didn't connect with my poor habits with my sleep, among other things. Uh, and what that looked like was I had the beginning as an ulcer. I had shingles in my twenties. I had lots of anxiety. I had a lot of things that just weren't working and how I was managing my health and well-being. Um, but I didn't, connect these things. And my habits got more and more extreme as a serial entrepreneur in Manhattan, burning the candle at both ends. Uh, There would just be times when I would go to bed later and later, and I'd be justified and righteous about it. And I'd say, well, I'm an entrepreneur, so I can just sleep in later. What's the big deal? Uh, But just not connecting that this was really doing me some harm on a number of areas in my life. So it wasn't until I went through this period of insomnia while traveling internationally that everything changed. Uh, This didn't come out of a vacuum. This came from just a tremendous amount of stress. Um, And uh, my husband and I, we've been together for over 11 years since the beginning of our relationship and um, self-funding a study that was just bleeding money to produce and uh, in the process of that. So had employees and lots of different um, obligations and the stress load of that, the tipping point for me when we decided to, you know, kind of take on this digital nomad life before we were ready for it was uh, just this experience of once we landed in Madrid uh, with a one-way ticket and, you know, just a backpack and carry-on and everything else in storage, you know, essentially homeless at this point because, you know, we had no home because we're going to take everything on the road. Uh, And that level of stress just hit. And then just night after night, I had this experience of I can't fall asleep. And this freak out that, wait, am I like losing my mind as the nights kind of progressed in day in, day out? And this is what this looked like. And I'd also um, had a background of family members that had a lot of um, mental health issues and had gone down the path of pharmaceuticals. And so for me, this had a lot of meaning layered into it of, oh, no, is this my moment where I'm this is now my new lot in life. I'm going to have to have this be my course. And it's always going to be like this, which turns out to be a lot of concerns for a lot of people with um, insomnia that they're stuck like this or they're broken. Uh, And so I went through this period and at my kind of some of my lowest points, went to the doctors in Croatia with Google Translate and said, help, I can't sleep and leave with their version of Ambien, proceeded to different doctors, um, it was a sea of Ambien, Valium, and Xanax, uh, and all of these things that we do know you should not be prescribing first thing when you are dealing with sleep. So just in case anyone was ever questioning, uh, that was really not what we what we expect doctors to do, but that's what happened for my doctors. And, um, and the experience was one of, all right, well, it appears for me that I need to really take 
uh, take this area on because the uh, the established path that I thought I could go on to get some support just didn't really show up in the way that I needed at that at that time. Uh, so it kind of created this quest for me. And so actually, we had this one way ticket. We went back to New York uh, because I just because of my sleep. That's how much of a problem it was. Um, and so went back and proceeded, saw uh, tons of doctors, saw, uh, worked with different sleep specialists, spent way too much money on all of these things. Um, you know, tried every supplement, drug, hypnosis, you know, the whole list. Uh, and over time, I, you know, discovered what worked and what didn't work. Uh, but I also became obsessed with this concept of chronobiology, which is really the science of time and how time affects our biology, uh, and really discovered that I was living upside down to some of these rhythms that are biologically hardwired for us so we can get into some of those, how they could be practical for the listener. Um, but it really just challenged me and had me change my, turn my life really upside down from how I had been managing things. So it ended up being a huge blessing. So on the other side of that, uh, now I know myself as quantifiably, you know, one of the best sleepers that I see for all my different stats that I'm just looking at hundreds of people, you know, cause we have everyone wearing aura rings, um, at the very least, but we look at lots of different stats and on different wearables. Um, and so to quantifiably now be a exceptional sleeper from the, the place that I was at before just was completely, I didn't even think it was available to me. And I truly believe it's available to any of us. If we then begin at the beginning and look at the skill set of sleep, um, which I truly believe is, has become a skill set in our modern society. So on the other side of that, now we, um, now we're in hotels. We work with professional uh, athletes. We have a niche in poker. So we work with a lot of poker players. Um, you know, we've worked with hundreds of individuals uh, looking at their individual stats. And I say all that just because it is wild, the transformation that came out of this kind of lowest moment. Um, and I think there's a lot that any listener that might be dealing any place that they might be at with their sleep that we can help support them with. Yeah, wow. What a what a journey. I'm so curious as to know how the drugs made you feel because often I know that uh, speaking to clients and, and working with people in, in hospitals as well, that when drugs are prescribed to help aid sleep, that really it's not sleep that occurs. It's some kind of sedation. And I would even say to all the listeners out there that use uh, weed, they smoke a doobie to get to sleep every night or use alcohol that we're still not really sleeping. It's a, a sense of sedation. Was that what happened with you too? So well said and so important. Because, uh, and that is really the takeaway with these types of drugs that you're not really getting true, true sleep, more of this sedation effect. And that was certainly my experience as well, where I would wake up the next day, um, it, it would help support this fear because I really began to have a bit of a sleep anxiety that um, almost like a performance would be happening every night, kind of like a public speaking and you're going to bomb. Uh, that's kind of how I started relating to it. And uh, it did help take a little bit of that pressure off in the beginning to the sleep onset piece. So that piece was a big deal for me at the time. Um, but then shortly thereafter, you know, so I might fall asleep for a couple hours, but because I was my sympathetic nervous system kind of response was so on overdrive, I was then waking up multiple times throughout the night. Um, and then when I would actually wake up in the, in the morning after all this kind of interruption, um, I would feel anything but, you know, a well-rested night of sleep. 
Um, and we know that they uh, uh, kind of adjust certain types of sleep architecture that you would like to see They, when you are on these different types of drugs, particularly benzos and Z drugs, um, which is what the ones that I was on, uh, they can really do some uh, kind of damage there. So in addition to that, I experienced a lot of side effects with those. Um, and so the whole slew of it is nothing that we want to promote for people to have as a real option if they're dealing you know, with the trouble with their sleep, certainly. Yeah, totally. Which is very much a narrative throughout a lot of the interviews we have here, which is that those kind of drugs are not the end game. <laughs> they should be, if anything, just a temporary pit stop while we figure out the cause of the problem or what's really going on in your life. And so Chronobiology, a lot of people are probably like, I've never heard that word. Um, however, I would love you to explain it. And I think it'll sort of trigger a lot of memories from people of different things I've probably mentioned over the years too. So what is chronobiology and, and how do we relate it to sleep? Yes, absolutely. Uh, one quick thing about what you said about the sleeping pills. Um, one quote that I just love, if any of your listeners, listeners are familiar with Dr. Peter Atia, uh, one quote that he has said that I just think is really tells the whole story where he says, I would rather have my patients put their genitals into a meat grinder than take Ambien every night. So uh, if anyone's interested in what, you know, he's like the limitless doctor and getting all this press right now, right? That's kind of his opinion on this type of drug. If anyone was ever considering this as an option. Uh, so yes, but to the, to the point of chronobiology, so fascinating. And I'm clear that this will be an area of study that will be getting much, much more press in the future. Um, I'm actually doing a series of talks on kind of uh, circadian health and how circadian health will be part of the future piece of not only wellness, but also architecture and kind of um, the design of your space. You know, you're mentioning hospital, um, hospital um, spaces, and from even just having a space where it's aligned with circadian um, lifestyles, so that can help with the healing process. And there's studies that are clear that even when patients are in a hospital room that have, say, just windows present, uh, that they find that the recovery time is improved uh, of, of kind of similar types of um, issues that these patients are dealing with if they have uh, alignment with these rhythms of nature. So I say that from a, as a quick devi uh, deviation, but to the point of chronobiology, it is the science of time and how time affects our biology, which includes all of these rhythms, and not from like a woo perspective, but from a biological hardwire perspective. And I know I'm throwing around words like circadian rhythm, so I should probably define that. Uh, so circadian rhythm is your rhythm that you're on around a 24-hour rhythm. As diurnal creatures, human beings, we're meant to be active by day and at rest at night. Um, and so all functioning within around that 24-hour cycle. Um, and there are other rhythms that are at play. There's ultradian rhythms, there are infradian rhythms. So ultradian kind of less than a day, um, circadian a day and infradian longer than a, certainly longer than a day looking at more like kind of like a moon cycle, say like 28 days, a month um, span of time and looking into seasons as well. So there's all of these rhythms that the body is trying to pay attention to as and to discern what time it is and what to be doing when. The reason that I'm clear that this is going to be so important in the future which is, I mean, for people that are um, in this kind of conversation and but certainly even more mainstream is because it really affects virtually everything in our body uh, the more aligned we are. So if you 
pull back one important framework to have is that our circadian rhythm really exists on a spectrum. So like any good spectrum, there's, you know, the one side where you're on the strong side of your circadian rhythm, strong side of your spectrum, or on the weak side. And the average person, I'd make the argument, is really hanging out more on the weak side of our circadian rhythm by virtue of the ways that we're conducting ourselves. And we'll get into some of these cues that some people might not even realize would affect their circadian rhythm, but they're hanging out on the weak side. And when you're on the weak side of your circadian rhythm, that's when you have these annoying fallouts with your sleep. So meaning you are not having strong cues of kind of your sleep-wake cycle. So your sleep pressure is thrown off and happening at wrong, you know, kind of times that you weren't planning for. So instead of if you move yourself over to the stronger side, which is circadian rhythm entrainment is the um, terminology for that. That's really everything that we do at Sleep is a Skill is to entrain your circadian rhythm and all your rhythms um, to have workability. So as you move it to the strong side, you become like that friend, for example, that maybe you all go out and you all are out late and yet this one friend always wakes up at his same, you know, 5.30 a.m. the next the next morning or whatever, right? And That's they're me. frustrated. <sighs> Right, that's you. Okay, then it's fantastic because we're really the goal is to be you, Maddie, is really what we're trying to <laughs> The goal is to be me. Well, that's it's really annoying though if I go out like, you know, with friends and I get home at like 2 a.m., I'm still without fail 6.30 every morning. That's our goal. Our goal is you because, and the reason I say that is Poster because, boy. <laughs> poster boy. Fantastic. Because that is an example of a strong circadian rhythm where your cues, yes, yeah, you, your rhythms are aligned. And that's so crucial because because of that, then we know, we know pretty much when Maddie's cortisol pulse is likely to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions, you know, they might have some other things at play, but um, presumably say for the ideal person that really has these things dialed in, uh, that then they're having that consistent wake up time. And what we are trying to cultivate is a strong circadian pulse, um, strong cortisol pulse in alignment with that strong circadian alignment piece. And so you're having that every morning and then you're shifting over into a stronger melatonin pulse in the evening and not having those fall into all kinds of crazy places. So part of that is about super unsexy things like consistent wake up times and consistent bedtimes, but even not to stress yourself out if too much of that sounds like a lot, even if you just pick um, consistent wake up times to begin because the, the trick is that usually the bedtime will kind of find its way if you keep the bed, uh, the wake up time consistent. And so, you mean consistent, like even on days off in the weekend and cause a lot of people find that really unsexy. They're like, Oh, Saturday, Sunday, that's my lion day. But you're meaning like daily, right? Daily, exactly, because then that becomes what you just described is known as social jet lag, which I think it could use some rebranding, like kind of self-created jet lag, because we saw during COVID that even if you're not hanging out with people, you're just on your phone or Netflix or whatever, then many people were skewing things all over the place and experiencing um, you know, difficulties with their sleep, even if they hadn't dealt with that in the past because of this lack of structure. Uh, so what we want to do is seven days a week have consistent wake-up times. You can swing it a bit plus or minus 30 minutes is kind of the recommendation. If it's a wild, wild night out, maybe like up to 45 minutes or so. Uh, but largely we're looking to maintain that 
such that you're not creating self-created jet lag for yourself. You didn't get on a plane, but you're experiencing those kind of symptoms of jet lag, which happens so often because people think not too much of just sleeping in, you know, two hours, three hours, which is akin to, you know, hopping on a plane from, for, I always use American centric example of New York to LA, but you know, you can apply that in Australia or other places. LA LA to Melbourne. That's brutal. That's a 17 and a half hour flight. Totally. Great example. Exactly. Uh, So, you know, we're looking to one, just start with the basics, which is consistency. And so if we're um, panning back out on this chronobiology piece, what this is kind of derived from just from a little bit of uh, perspective on that is uh, essentially the suprachiasmatic nucleus is this little node in your brain that is like the master conductor for all of these peripheral clocks that are found in virtually every cell and organ in your body. And the goal is for all of these to be on time. And they're kind of sensing the environment and your behaviors to know what time it is and what to be doing when. So like in that trip that you mentioned, LA to Melbourne, If you do that and you are not able to adjust, that would be really problematic, but we are able to adjust. And that's an example of the body um, kind of sensing, oh, okay, I guess we're doing things different over here in Australia than we were in LA. So we're going to adjust accordingly. It might take us a couple days, but we'll get there. Uh, So that's why it becomes so important to have these consistent cues. Now we can get into some of the really interesting things around what are some of those cues that uh, tell the body what to be doing and when. And they tell the body through that suprachiasmatic nucleus that informs these other clocks. Uh, and essentially that is directly connected to your eyes. So that becomes, that gives us a clue that the first most important one out of anything that I'm going to tell you about is light. So light dark cycle we know is the highest ranking, what's called Zeitgeber or time giver, just German for time giver. And this light dark cycle becomes so, so crucial. So if you get nothing else out of what I'm saying, we want everything to be under the umbrella of consistency. And the first most important piece of consistent cueing that you want to have is light dark cycle. So we often say for clients, if possible, to kind of wake up and fall. I know you're often having to fall onto our Zoom calls, uh, but fall out of bed into the light, fall out of bed into the sun exposure. Maybe on future Zoom calls, we can have you go on some walks while we're chatting or something. But uh, getting, getting that light in your eyes is so, so crucial because that resets our master clock. It goes straight through those eyes. So you want to get rid of the sunglasses and the hats and all those things that many of us might be wearing throughout the course of the day, of course, being you know safe and what have you. Uh, but when it applies, then doing that because that is so, so crucial to get a high amplitude of light throughout the course of the day and then shifting over post-sunset to very dim to dark, uh, total darkness while you're sleeping. So even if you just get that handled, that often takes care of a lot of some of the things we'll speak about. How big is the the source of the light? Because uh, like obviously rolling out onto Zoom calls and like even right now, so what is it, 9 a.m. for me, I've got very artificial light in my eyes. However, I purposely went for a long walk in the sun thinking I'm jumping on a call with Molly. I should tick all the boxes. (laughs) I love it. Yes, exactly. So like because a lot of people wake up, um, you know, and turn the lights on in their house or, or they go into an office or a gym that's got, you know, really brutal white light. Um, coming down. So is that okay? Or should people be really looking to get sunlight into their eyes? 
Oh, great questions. Okay. So one, uh, what we're really asking for, this is why we say sleep is a skill because we really do request that you become a bit of a, um, uh, informed around light and the kind of the physics of light is kind of what we're asking for only because in the past we didn't have to worry about this because we weren't spending almost 93% of our days, which studies find that we're spending around 93% of our days inside. Uh, and that was back in 2001. So it's probably even more than that now. Yeah, it's probably 98. <laughs> it's probably 98. Let's be, let's be honest. Uh, and so most of our days are so indoors that this is why we have to get into the physics of light and all this stuff. But in the past, it's just kind of happened. Um, but you know, so we lived outside. But now we don't. So because of that, then what you can become, uh, as far as this connoisseur of light, there's a couple of things that I can recommend. One, there's free apps. Um, the Light Meter and Lux uh, are some examples of some apps that you can download that will actually um, basically give you the Lux output, the readout of the brightness and intensity of the light in your space. Uh, then light gets more complicated. There's the Calvins and all these other things. But uh, just even looking at the Lux output will be really uh, informative. And so what usually happens is even when we turn on the lights in our space, we're still shocked at how low, uh, the Lux output usually is unless you have like a true light box, you know, for like seasonal affective disorder, or maybe a ring light for, you know, your Instagrammer or whatever. Uh, so some of these sort of things ha tend to have a higher Lux output. Um, but there's still only one type of light. So this is why we really want to get full spectrum light, which is, comes as available from the sun. Now you cannot skip the step of many people will say, well, I'm just, you know, I have these big windows and I'm fine. Well, the windows cut some of that light. So you're not getting this full spectrum, particularly in the morning, which has is present of more infrared light. You know, people will spend all this money to get these red light panels. And I mean, not to knock them, I totally have them, but, um, you know, people spend money, they're even prescriptive in nature for skin issues and mitochondrial health and what have you. And yet you can get them for get that light for free on the first half of the day and the last half of the day. So during sunrise and sunset, that pinky color is more infrared uh, light. So by being outside present for that, that's going to help reset that master clock um, differently than you would inside for most people. Because uh, what most people find is that the indoor lux is like pretty piddly often. It's like 500 lux or something, you know, very small. Whereas if you get outside, um, especially throughout the course of the day, depending on where you might be, if you're closer to the equator, you can get up to, you know, 100,000 lux or more depending. Uh, but certainly we're, we're looking to have over the 10,000 lux range. So this is what you're trying to get throughout the course of the day. Now on the morning, it's a bit dimmer. It has that pinky hue and, but it's still going to be much brighter than usually what's inside. So all that to say that, um, really popular, uh, really interesting noteworthy studies have found that it takes anywhere from 50 to hundred times longer to reset your master clock in the morning by getting the light through the sun, through your windows versus just physically taking yourself outside. So, yeah, so that's big difference. We actually had, um, Dr. Jamie, um, Zeitzer out of Stanford on the podcast who, um, fascinating work in the realm of chronobiology and circadian lighting. Um, and so he's really pioneering, uh, some of those studies looking at the kind of practical effects. He's even in the works of creating, uh, kind of stylish, uh, kind of glasses that will do light therapy from the glasses. So you can kind of walk around, have your coffee and get the light therapy. Right. Um, 
But so that those things are coming. And yet at the same time, our goal is to have those supplement not replace physically that getting outside and getting that sunlight is really our goal. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, there's so, so much juicy stuff in there. Uh, yeah. with, with the chronobiology, and obviously we're talking about the, the light element of that, there's also a food element and that you can also predict the times that are optimal in relation to when you wake and when you sleep in order to eat, right? Um, and these days, it's so common to find people that can't go to bed without a snack or even that they wake up in the middle of the night hungry. I'm so curious to know how a lack of sleep or poor sleep or insomnia or sleep apnea contributes to that sort of food choice that happens throughout the day or maybe the relationship with food that we have. Oh, such a good question. And yeah, for some further context, you just totally nailed it. So, you know, we were talking about um, zeitgeibers or time givers that tell the body what time it is and what to be doing when. We mentioned light-dark cycle, um, and just to give people a primer, we won't have time to get into all of them, but just so that they know. Um, so it kind of goes from light, dark, then the next most important one being temperature. And I'm saying this because um, meal timing actually changes the body temperature. And so it feeds into one of those cues and, and meal timing is its own zeitgeiber. Um, but it even impacts temperature, which is really high up on the rungs of most impactful uh, for kind of telling the body what time it is, because our body temperature is not stagnant throughout the whole course of the day. It's dynamic. Um, so we're looking to create an environment where you're largely having a higher bodily temperature throughout the course of the day, going into the you know early evening, and then uh, a real pretty significant drop. Um, I was talking Fahrenheit, but you know usually around two to three degrees Fahrenheit. Sorry for the. Uh, kind of American sense. So having said that, you know, it really a significant drop. And what can kind of throw that off? Well, one thing is eating late, which unfortunately, many of us are doing. So I'm really excited about some research out of the Sulk Institute by Dr. Sachin Panda, who's been working on this uh, topic for over... Oh, he's so over amazing. So amazing. I know over to, like fangirl with him uh, over two decades. I mean, literally people are talking about like tapping him as a possible Nobel prize uh, kind oh, of sure. Level, I'm surprised it right? hasn't happened yet. 
I'm surprised as well. Uh, you know, so just really fascinating stuff. Um, so he also has a book, Circadian Code. Uh, so it would be worth a listen um, or certainly just checking him out on podcast. But the takeaway is that uh, some of their findings is that the timing of that food, no matter what type of food, if you're carnivore, if you're vegan, whatever, but if you are having any type of food that's not water, that that sends a kind of circadian cue according to his findings. So um, some of the things that you could extrapolate from that are two things. One, something known as circadian rhythm intermittent fasting, which might sound like more dramatic than it really is. It's really looking to have uh, that you're pretty much eating when the sun is present largely if possible or as close to when sun is out and you're trying to not eat too much when it's dark. Uh, so the goal around that, and, and if you think about all this, really, it, some of this might sound like super complicated and like, why do we have to think so much to sleep? But all of this, if you use the blueprint of how things were for thousands of years as hunter gatherers, all of this would have just happened because it would, you know, for all that time we would be outside. And then when the sun would set, it was pretty much game over because you didn't have pantries and you weren't, you know, rummaging around and eating whatever. It just seven eleven wasn't open at 3am on a Tuesday. And so it'd be incredibly odd behavior to at 3am be roaming around and like eating, like you would just wouldn't be doing this. So you'd be probably kicked out of the Mm. tribe Um, because (laughs) Get out of this tribe. We don't do 7-Eleven. <laughs> we don't do this here. Exactly. And yet we have become accustomed to this familiarity of the oddities of all this. And yet would have, what would have happened was one of the first biohacks, arguably, would have been fire to extend our days just a little bit. But uh, with that, then we want to kind of align our meal patterns with how we would have done this, you know, thing called life for thousands of years for so long. So how can we have that happen with circadian rhythm, intermittent fasting? Then another more um, uh, kind of extreme one, I guess you could say, is called early time restricted feeding. And that one is where instead of uh, you probably heard of people skipping breakfast and then they say, oh, it's so good. And, you know, I love it. Um, well, with early time restricted feeding, it's the opposite where you are beginning your day kind of front loading your calories and then you are stopping more around say like 2 PM, 3 PM, depending on your sleep and wake schedule. Um, and then, so with that, it looks more kind of like a lunch and dinner kind of liner situation and you're ending around there. There are some interesting studies, even with that of really, um, shifting people's hormones, the quality of their sleep, uh, a lot of really interesting things that we want to get more information around uh, how that could also be useful for people. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I think as well, um, like a lot of people that have difficulty with sleep that do eat late, like it, when they understand the body temperature thing, it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, for instance, I think about it like basically bed is like the garage that you put your car in and eating is like starting the engine of that car. So obviously Mm. if you have the engine on, uh, the temperature is going to run hot, but obviously when you park your car in the garage, you don't want to run the engine. So it's the same, same thing as going to, to bed. It's like, if you go to bed with a full stomach, your body's like, all right, let's drop the temperature to go to sleep. Then your stomach's like, hang on, let's put the temperature up to digest the food. And it's just this constant flux between up, down, up, down. And then people are toss, turn, toss, turn, wake up, like, you know, can't really sleep. And they're like, oh, I get it. My body's chasing opposite temperatures at the same time. Yes, 100%. No, I I love that analogy. It really 
really is helpful for us to kind of envision the why that we might not want to do. And it can feel weird, um, especially if your circadian rhythm is on the weaker side of the spectrum and it is a little misaligned. Often we do have hunger cues at kind of the wrong times. And uh, from that chronobiology perspective, there's meant to be sort of strong, hard wiring so that in the evening, you're ha- you're not having a lot of these hunger cues happening uh, by design. If, if everything's working properly, that's actually set up so that we can kind of shift over into sleep and then not be disturbed while we're sleeping from all this hunger cues. And if you are, that can be a, like a symptom or a sign for you that something might be a little dysregulated. I'm curious of the impact on glucose, insulin, hunger, cravings, with people that have a lack of sleep, which arguably is like, you know, you've sort of suggested most people, uh, like how does that impact their food choices or the things that they move towards throughout the day? Oh my gosh. Yes. How much time do you have? Because <laughs> it is so interesting. Well, uh, just the, the highlights are uh, years back, we had done a very small kind of informal, um, kind of focus group look with levels, health, another, I keep mentioning so many American things. Um, okay. Okay, <laughs> Plenty of Americans listen in. okay, great, great, great. Um, so, you know, just a continuous glucose monitor company that is using the Libre and we overlaid that data with users of the aura ring. And we would find one, just, uh, the, the commonality that, when glucose would be dropping throughout the course of the night and the, the annoying like 3 a.m., 4 a.m. time that when you would put over the sleep data that we'd often find wake-ups during that time that coincided. So that'd be some of the fallout and the impact. Um, but then then we flash forward to that next day after that kind of insufficient sleep or maybe it was a shortened sleep because of all the wake-ups or whatever happened. So sleep deprivation, we tend to see uh, in certain studies a expectation that even after one one or two nights of poor sleep, then a kind of just take the the resting level of glucose that you might be at and just move it up and just move it up. And on average, in some of these studies, finding around 25% of a move up in your resting glucose state, which is not nothing, especially after just like a couple of nights. Um, and then if you augment that of kind of poor behaviors over months and years, then certainly get some dysregulation that sets you up to have more struggle when you are making your choices in the kitchen because you're going to be looking for the thing that gives you the quick hit of energy, essentially. Um, And then pair that also with something that we definitely would need another show to get into, which is infradian rhythm, which is essentially for women of menstruating age, that you also have another conundrum to to be, not, I'm not meaning to say conundrum, but you know something to be mindful of because um, these changes in our rhythms at certain months, at certain times of the month, then can also further be uh, up-leveling that level of glucose. So it's already moving up. And then pair that with poor sleep, which often can come about as the kind of this bi-directional relationship when you're moving into things like, you know, your luteal state and your, um, during your cycle. So all of that then sets you up to have more cravings. But if you reverse engineer this and know what can be at, at stake here, then by the prioritization and having sort of this circadian lens to your life, it allows to kind of, um, take away some of this extra struggle that doesn't necessarily need to be there in that same way. 
Yeah, that, that sounds like it would pair very nicely with the program that I run because I have um, I pull apart the, the, the menstrual cycle and talk about how we should eat differently in each of those weeks because so many people end up failing on diets because they get to, you know, say week four where carb cravings go up and sugar cravings happen naturally as they're meant to. Um, and they're still trying to apply the thing that they started on day one because that's what the diet prescribes. And you know, so many people throw in the towel at that point when actually we should be planning for it. And so it sounds like the same thing should be happening with sleep. Yes, 100%. And that's where the wearables can really shine. Uh, because then you can also be tracking things like your we do a lot of work with heart rate variability, um, HRV. And so we talk about that because it's really a great metric of recovery. And it's a great objective metric of your nervous system and kind of the psycho uh, physiological aspects of your nervous system. Um, so you can also see stress load. And we know that on average, this is why women were taken out of a lot of studies um, previously in decades past before more laws came to pass. But in the previously, because we had such variability and there was a knowing that often in the second half of our cycle, HRV levels often would tank. Uh, so when we know all of this and we're informed about this, then the we can set ourselves up powerfully to know that we might need to up level and up um, bring in more kind of stress reduction techniques, make those choices, um, you know, that you're speaking to and helping people uh, so that they're not having added stressors and making them because often, unfortunately, what we see is at night, then that uptick in sympathetic nervous system response, and then more difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, and then early rising, um, which all of which are just frustrating for so many people, especially when you're already dealing with that hormonal fluctuation in that second half of your cycle. There's so many ways I want to take this conversation, Molly. So I'm going to try and pick one. I know. <laughs> so when when you mentioned that that uptick in 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 that of an evening, but it makes me think about the stress. Like so, we we get stressed from normal life. Life is chaotic, and talking about women and menstruating makes me think about kids and the stress that kids put on life as well. And so, how is the cortisol that I guess the unmanaged cortisol impacting sleep? Like, is that keeping people awake all throughout the night? Is that the thing that wakes people up when they should be asleep? Is it this sort of unmitigated or unmanaged stress response that they just goes out of check for years? Yes. Oh my goodness. A hundred percent. Often we will see, especially people dealing with anxiety and depression, um, often exhibiting a delayed cortisol pulse. So they're getting that kind of peak in cortisol much too late going into the evening. That's certainly what I was dealing with, with my sleep, where instead of, because if things are kind of working, all this helps, the body's helping you so that you don't have to have a million meditation apps at night and do all these tricks and, you know, witchery to get yourself to sleep. It actually is set up so that your body um, temperature is going down, your heart rate's going down, cortisol is lowering, melatonin is going up. All these things are guiding you to sleep and it kind of just works. And then you just you know, effortlessly is our goal kind of fall asleep. But if all of this is upside down, which, you know, to keep using myself as the example, I certainly was managing my life like that. And that's what it looked like where then my heart rate's going up, anxiety levels are peaking, all of these things are happening before bed, which is not great. Uh, and so, but certainly, uh, if anyone is dealing with something like that, one, you can test for this. Um, so, 
again, American centric, but the Dutch test um, being a really uh, helpful tool or, you know, any test that will test for melatonin and cortisol uh, throughout the course of the day and see what kind of what's happening uh, as you first wake up until when you, when you're last going to sleep, um, that can be helpful. But then even uh, aside from that, then we can implement some of these things that we're talking about to help support the normalizing of those hormones. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, Dutch test super common over here as well. Right. Um, so, okay. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Just we, know, we, know sure. we know what's going on. Um, the other thing too that comes to mind is I hear a lot, and you probably hear this a lot too. Like, I've slept five hours for years. I can't sleep longer. And so, people that have fallen into this um, trap, whether it be due to what you know, once upon a time they had young kids and they never recovered their sleep, or they worked night shift for a long time and created the sleep schedule or the sleep pattern, which is just the way that they are now. Is that stuff reversible, or are people permanently damaged, broken? you know, into these sleep patterns, because that's kind of the narrative that they have for themselves. This is yeah. just, this is just what I do. I just wake up feeling this way. I only sleep four hours, whatever the story is. Is this reversible for people? Can we train that back into a sort of seven to nine hour window? Oh, yes. Number one, there's always so much we can do in the realm of sleep um, to measurably shift your results in various areas, both um, sleep duration, like you're speaking to, as well as sleep efficiency um, and other kind of key measurable objective data. But so the one thing with that is I will say a couple of things. Right now, the kind of general rule of thumb is the suggestion that for the average healthy adult, um, averaging around seven to nine hours of sleep is the recommendation. Now, I will say later in life, um, we do tend to see a bit of a drop and it might look more like the six to eight hour window or so. Um, so there does seem to be a kind of a measurable shift of going into less sleep. There's theories on this. Um, I'll say from even an anthropological perspective, there's an interesting theory that um, the elders then might bring their use in from the light sleep so that they can almost be on alert uh, for the tribe at night if invaders right, okay. are interesting theory, you know, we don't know. Yeah. But uh, but I'll just say that there is sort of a, a knowing um, that there does tend to be a little bit of a drop. But I think uh, at the same time, it doesn't necessarily always have to look that way. And I um, would argue, and this is just an argument, that I think in uh, as it relates to our society, often we see major changes that happen with people post retirement, and now suddenly they're having a lot more swings. And so I get a lot of people um, post retirement that are struggling with their sleep because now they don't have to wake up at a consistent time. They're taking lots of naps. They're doing lots of things that are really um, negatively impacting that sleep pressure levels of adenosine throughout the course of the day that then would make them sleepy at consistent times at night and then stay asleep throughout the course of the night. Um, so I do think there could be room to explore. Are we doing certain things that are making it even harder for those individuals too? Um, but so for overall as a whole, there are so many things that we can do to impact both sleep duration um, and sleep quality. But I will say there is a bit of a shoe size analogy for sleep duration. So some people requiring much more sleep, some people less. Now, an important thing that we haven't even gone into, and it's a whole other topic, but I do just want to make sure I say um, that this is not touching on 
and certain sleep pathologies. There's over 80 sleep pathologies that people might be dealing with and have no idea. And some very common ones are things like sleep apnea, which could affect your sleep duration, either having you have lots of wake ups, and then you might just be waking up in the morning and now you say, oh, well, I guess I'm up. Or it um, manifests for some people of just lots of sleep because they're getting such poor sleep because they're waking up so often. And even if they don't remember it, that might be at play, depending on if it's mild, moderate, or severe sleep apnea. And then if it's not full-blown sleep apnea, there's also something called upper airway resistance syndrome. And that can be another kind of category that might just be having you kind of have a little bit poor quality of sleep that you might not realize. This goes into the realm of people might have seen mouth taping kind of come into vogue now, right? Um, so things of this nature that might just be making the tight, the, the amount of sleep you're getting uh, not as rich. So you're waking up kind of more zombie-like than you'd like. Um, or it might be causing more wake-ups. And then as a result, you might start getting used to, well, I guess I just wake up at, you know, five in the morning or whatever. And it wasn't quite by your true design. Yeah, gotcha. And just for those listening that just heard mouth taping and were like, is that something left over from S&M the night before? It's not. It's not. It's a real thing that's going to help you sleep better. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for providing more of a necessary asterisk than I did. Just kind of glaze right past that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard so many people have massive benefits from mouth taping. It's, um, yeah, because, and I mean, and people are like, why would I need to do that? And it's got a lot to do, I think, with the the nutrition we've consumed over the last hundred yeah. years and Thus, the humans that are being created have got smaller jaws, smaller f face shapes that are not conducive to airways and facial structures that allow us to nasal breathe uh, throughout the night. So we all sit there with our mouth ha hanging open all night. Yes, 100%. And you nailed it with the Jaws statement. Because um, there's, if people want resources, if they want to explore more of this, um, Jaws is actually a book uh, that was written kind of more an academic leaning look at the what's happened to our face shape and how that's affected things like our breathing and like our vagal tone and our sleep. Um, so that's the more academic one. If you want more of a kind of um, mainstream one, Breath by James Nestor is another one that's really interesting on the mouth tape uh, piece. So all of those could be worth taking a look at. Yeah, awesome. Molly, I love hanging, having you here. And I want you to come back so we can do one on sleep apnea and insomnia and all of the different things. Um, but because everybody has obviously fallen in love with you at this point, where can they find you online? Oh, I love that leading question. Let's let's just assume that that's happened. I hope. Hope I didn't give too many bad news things. Oh, now you got to stop eating at night. And now you got to get rid of your lighting and do all kinds of weird things. <laughs> uh, so assuming people are still listening to me after all this. Uh, yes, I would uh, love, love, love for you to check out sleepisaskill.com and hopefully do a couple of things. So one, we have a sleep assessment test that you can take on there. Um, and it will give you kind of tailored information back around your particular um, kind of sleep situation. And as well as signing you up for our weekly newsletter, we'd love to have you on our weekly newsletter. Uh, that is, we call it Sleep Obsessions. We've been doing it every Monday for four, over four years now. And our aim is to make it the most obsessive sleep newsletter on the planet. Uh, so would love to have you on there. And we're also very interactive on there. So if you respond back and just share whatever is going on with your sleep, if you're finding interesting things with sleep experiments that you're leading with different wearables or whatever, just, you know, feel free to reply to the email. Amazing. All right, everybody, the links for all of that amazing stuff is going to be down in the show notes below. So 
scroll down, click the link, go and hang out with Molly. And if you've enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. If your partner struggles with sleep, if anybody you know struggles with sleep, please share this episode with them. And feel free to tag us both on social media too. Those links will be down in the show notes. Uh, before we wrap up, Molly, what is one piece of health information you wish more people knew about? Ah. Oh. Well, I know we talked about this before we hit record um, and we were we were wondering and I was wondering what I would say to this one. Would I go into a kind of um, philosophical note or not? But I do feel like I need to stick to my mission, which is sleep. Uh, and I say that because I just truly believe in my heart of hearts that uh, the average person has no idea the transformative quality that can become available, uh, the more agency you have around your sleep. And by doing that, by kind of stepping into this idea that you know, just pretend for a second that we know nothing about sleep, um, that we have this blank slate and tabula rasa kind of experience around our sleep. What if we were to take on studying it like any skill, like, you know, the piano or singing or whatever you might uh, choose to study? What if we studied this thing that we do over a third of our lives, you know, the average person around 26 years of our life? And yet, sadly, the average doctor has only had two hours of training in this area of this thing that we do so often. Uh, so the average, you know, kind of um, professional that you might be around, unfortunately, isn't that educated unless they are sleep trained. Uh, so it does behoove you to then take it upon yourself to begin to educate on this thing that I really truly believe is so foundational. If you think of a pyramid, I hope that you start to envision sleep as the you know bottom of that period, but a pyramid by which then you can support all of our endeavors with like what we talked about with glucose. Because if you're getting that proper sleep, then your resting glucose level is supporting you to make those great decisions in the kitchen to get yourself to the gym and actually gain the results that you would gain from the gym by getting all the benefits that you get during sleep. I mean, we didn't even touch on testosterone levels, growth hormone, all, you know, it's just so wide reaching the difference that it makes uh, to your health and your life. And I would just say my last thing about it is one of the things that I'm really passionate about with sleep is how this can just be such a support, particularly for mental health too. You know, I shared that I had some fears for myself of like, oh my God, am I losing my mind with this sleep situation? And unfortunately, um, if those things go unchecked, that can be a real uh, trigger for a lot of people to go into some maladaptive kind of uh, mental health states. And sometimes, unfortunately, that can become, um, you know, pathological in nature and be long standing. So if we kind of support this uh, endeavor and start to use sleep as a barometer of the workability of your life, it becomes kind of a, a way to keep things in balance and in check. Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. And it blows my mind that, uh, we literally instruct everybody to go and get some rest and some sleep, which is where all the healing and the recovery happens. And we all know that intuitively. Yeah. And doctors, you know, the healers of the modern world are only given two hours of education. I mean, I've ranted about that yeah. before and nutrition and their education, all that kind of stuff. But yes. like sleep is the healing agent, like, you know, but um, anyway, rant for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, thanks so much for being here. Um, and I look forward to getting you back really soon. Yay. Amazing. Thank you so much, Maddie, for the work you're doing. It's incredible. Likewise. We'll chat soon. Yay. Bye. 
thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.